0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting On Demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording this on Friday, September 25th, 2020. And today on the program, there have been a slew of new COVID-19 cases in promotions like WWE, AEW, and CMLL as the pandemic rages on. There have been a new sports TV rights agreement between Turner Sports and Major League Baseball. There has been a new WWE video game in the world of consumer products. There has been a new variety article on WWE today with quotes from a very intelligent, wrestling business expert. There has been a stock sale by WWE Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon. We'll get to the bottom of that deep, opaque mystery that is WWE ownership. The Department of Labor has issued proposed rules. I'll tell you why it doesn't even matter. (laughs) There has been TV viewership as there always is. Monday Night Football rages on. AEW and NXT go head-to-head. And then finally... We will close the program with some theater. Let's write love letters, correspondence, drama. As we read the correspondence between World Wrestling Entertainment Inc. and the Security and Exchanges Commission. All that, and can you believe it more? But first... Fightful and John Alba have confirmed this week that multiple wrestlers at AEW at the September 9th tapings have tested positive for COVID-19 in the two weeks since those tapings occurred. There were numerous wrestlers not there, not appearing at the September 24th set of tapings. Separately, Lance Archer identified that he had COVID-19 before the show started, but that he contracted it from a family member. According to John Alba, there has also been an outbreak of COVID-19 at the Makeshift Performance Center two weeks ago. Meanwhile, ahead of CMLL's anniversary show, Ultimo Guerrero and Bandito have tested positive for COVID-19. We haven't talked about COVID-19 case rates or death rates or testing positive rates in a while. If we look at the Florida dashboard, we see that positive test result rates in Florida have been uh, on the decline over the last several weeks. Uh, at last measurement, at the week of September thirteenth, the test, the positive test rate in Florida was about four and a half percent. That's on a downward trajectory from weeks prior. That's in the state of Florida. If we isolate that to Duval County in the Florida dashboard, we see that it's it's uh, at a similar four point one five so under 5% the the target rate of one time for Florida was to be under 10% if we go to orange county by the way Duval county is the home of Jacksonville the home of AEW orange county is the home of Orlando and of WWE's performance center and the and and as well as the Amway Center where now the Thunderdome is and the same similar trajectory similar trends For testing result rates in Orange County at the last week, uh, 4.3%. If we look at cases by county, cases by county in Orange County seem pretty consistent under 200 most days. As for Duval County, if we pull up Duval County on the Florida COVID-19 data and surveillance dashboard, similar under 200 most days. That's not adjusting for population. But Florida overall, under 4,000 new cases on most days, deaths, although deaths do take some time to, to roll in and catch up, but deaths do seem to be on the decline. But if we look at the United States overall, and let's, uh, to give it something to compare it to, look at Mexico and adjust that per capita, adjust that for population, there, there must be, and I don't know this information, but there must be some real short supply of testing in, in Mexico, 50% of COVID tests in Mexico are positive uh, in the United States. It's been pretty consistent at between four and five percent throughout the country. If we look at deaths, confirmed deaths, adjust that per capita on a seven day rolling average. We're getting this data from OurWorldInData.org, world which gets its data from the European CDC. Mexico has uh, been above the United States in deaths per capita all the way Uh, Throughout this pandemic, in fact, Mexico has had a higher death rate per population. By all indications, the CML Anniversary Show is going on tonight as scheduled. We did the Cubs fan on on VoicesOfWrestling.com in a preview of the Anniversary Show. He had this to say about the wrestling industry in Mexico. He writes, No wrestling industry was less suited to handle the pandemic than Mexico. Almost all the revenue comes from ticket sales, which are gone for now. Most merchandise sales are on a luchador to fan face-to-face, which can't work the same. The TV money is minuscule by U.S. standards, and what digital income existed depended on having new live events. Both AAA and CMLL are family-owned businesses, and those families appear to have done very well from those businesses. Still, no one was ready for six months of almost no money coming in. No money coming in also meant no money was going to go out luchadors, who are still mostly paid through, now non-existent, ticket sales. A recent Los Angeles Times article chronicled Ultimo Guerrero operating a food truck as a sign of how Mexican wrestlers have fallen without work. In reality, Ultimo Guerrero owning and operating a food truck probably puts him in a better spot than many out-of-work luchadors. So I I just don't know uh, what to think of North America here at this point. And if you look at, go back to the, um, Our world in data, the daily new confirmed COVID-19 deaths per million, seven-day rolling average. And let's just look at the last data points on the chart for each of Mexico, United States, and Japan. In Japan, it's 0.05, United States 2.2, Mexico 3.3. So that's, that's what. Japan. Uh, so let's take Mexico with their 3.29, and divide that by Japan's rate. You got 65 times the death in Mexico than Japan per capita. 65 times. Um, if we do that to the United States with with our 2.1 divided by Japan's 0.06, 35 times the death in the United States versus Japan. 65 times the death in Mexico, where in Japan, now they're bringing people back to the building. And, and then only then, uh, at least in New Japan's case, people are wearing masks and not allowed to cheer. Yet in the United States, where it's 35 times worse in Mexico, where it's 65 times worse, we're still doing shows. And in the United States, we're trying to get people back into the arenas. Uh, AEW putting people back in the arenas, uh, on a limited basis at Daily's Place, WWE reportedly looking at going back on the road. And if you go and look back at July when at least New Japan decided to put fans back in the buildings on a limited capacity, the death rates were even lower. Uh deaths per million in Japan, basically at zero. The chart says negative point Zero, one. These deaths were basically at zero. We are not willing to make such sacrifices here in North America. In the case of the United States, by God, there's U.S. TV money on the line, which is massive. It may be the matter of uh, continuing on as business or not in the case of AEW. Probably the matter of being profitable or not in the case of WB. In the case of Mexico, there is no TV money, and there's only, they're only relying there on ticket money. On the other hand, so is Japan, so is New Japan, and a number of other companies in Japan, really none of which rely largely on money from video or media or TV content. You know, how many people are dead now from COVID who might have been alive if there weren't these wrestling shows? Uh, come on, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. You can't say that. Well, I, well, we've got more than twice the number of people dead in this country who died in the Vietnam War. And uh, six times the number of people dead uh, from COVID of people who've died last year from the flu. Six times. But you can't say that. Nobody wants to hear that. People want to go back to work and they have jobs to do. People want to be entertained. We got empty arena wrestling shows to produce. TV money to collect. So you can't see that. That's just moral outrage. That's just, uh, it's just numbers. And I don't know what is more important here than revenue and entertainment sometimes. Sorry, I guess, if you didn't want to hear any of that. We'll take a break and come back with something more entertaining in a moment.
0: Through those doors that I have, again, had such a fortunate education in multiple facets. So it's, it's like I've had, you know, 15 different jobs, you know, over the tenure of my career. Uh, and you learn so much it, whether I was working inside the company happened to be all under one umbrella so taking that knowledge I uh, wanted to go outside for a little while um, also it was very important for me one of the one of the bigger driving factors was uh, I have three boys and I wanted more time with them I was able to coach you know uh, all my sons you know peewee football all the way up until they got high school just being around a whole lot more as well as um you know, immersing myself in some businesses that I wanted to do, and testing how would I fare outside the cocoon, and to do something completely different. You know, take those skill sets and you know get involved um, with multiple multiple businesses, uh, do some investing, do some things like that that I've always you know had the uh, I've always had the affinity to do, uh, and 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 go for it. So you know, not with some some work really well, uh, others are just like oh, okay worked okay, uh, but. But the main thing is, it just gave me back so much time. Um, and then, you know, so I really came out of the business for my voice.
1: That was Shane McMahon earlier this month on the W podcast After the Bell, explaining why he left W in 2009, his last corporate title, W's Executive Vice President of Global Media. Again, that was. This month in September, Shane gave a different answer in 2016 when he was on the W Network in an interview with Mick Foley.
2: I think with any parent and uh, sibling, or I should say parent and, uh, and child relationship, it's, you know, it's tough, especially with the older guard, allowing the new guard to flesh those ideas out and try them and go for it because they're so guarded against it. So. So, do you, was he not open enough to your ideas? No. Um, and, and what grew out of that was I mean you're asking me the real, you know, the, the reason that? Yeah, I left the
3: yeah. If you had to sum up the reason you left,
2: um, it became—it it stopped being a collaboration, and it stopped being fun. And when that happened, you know, the WWE defines my father, right? Um, and I wasn't going to allow a deteriorating business relationship to affect our personal lives. And that's exactly what was happening. And so I decided, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I love them too much. And I decided to leave.
1: So what in the world am I bringing this up now for? Well, it's just a a cascade of things. unfolded this week as Stephanie McMahon made a a stock sale of some W shares that she owns, which she owns many. And uh, this resulted in uh, the SEC filings being published and uh, Dave Meltzer misinterpreting uh just how much what portion or what percentage of Seg McMahon's stock was sold. Um and uh someone had to correct Dave, but this led me to go into a a deep dive into the uh, the SEC filings uh related to W's ownership. I've always been confused. Uh, this won't make a good podcast to, to explain just how complicated the reporting is in the SEC filings for W's uh ownership but suffice to say, I you are listening now to a person who has a greater understanding of WB ownership than it's probably healthy for any human being to have. And I have learned some interesting things. So so what happened here? Um, On what day was it? Let's see what day this was. Since I have a spreadsheet that catalogs every reported WB stock move, uh, on file with the SEC. Let's look at Stephanie made a sale on the 21st of this month, which was Monday. <clears throat> Stephanie sold 57,573 shares, um, which is worth about two and a half million dollars. So she owns a lot more stock than that. Uh, that is 46% of her A class shares. Uh, Dave tweeted that she had sold 46% of all of her shares. Um, and also adding that this was the worst possible time for her to do so. Um, so Stephanie, in fact, owns, let's see, how many shares before she made this sale? About 1.9 million shares. Is that right? Yeah. It's hard to say because there's some discrepancies between the proxy statements and the SEC form fours, which I find, uh, hard to parse, but, Somewhere between 1.8 and 1.9 million shares. She sold 57,000 and half of them. So a really small portion, about 2%, maybe 3% of her overall ownership was sold. Uh, again, Dave tweeted that this was 46%, but, it's, but it wasn't. Uh, I corrected him. But not before uh, some news sites picked it up and you know, published the uh, attention-grabbing headline that Stammy had sold 46% of her shares. Um, So this is easy to mix up, especially when it comes to the McMahons, because, and the McMahons are the most interesting people who own W shares, especially if you're a, a news site that needs ad revenue and clicks and attention. Uh, the McMahons are the most interesting people who own W shares, but the McMahons also own these Class B shares, which give them... 10 times the voting power of people who own the regular class A shares. So it's, it's complicated. Class B shares can are, before they are sold, are always converted to class A shares. You can't, Stephanie, Vince, or Linda, Shane doesn't own any anymore. And we'll get to that in a moment. They can't just sell their class B shares to non-family members. It doesn't work that way. The point of the class B shares is to give the, the founder, uh, control of the company while giving up uh, perhaps the majority of the stake. So lots of other companies are like this. Uh, that doesn't make it right or a great idea for a company, but Facebook is like that. Uh, and I understand Google is like that. Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook owns Class B shares. I believe the founders of Google own Class B shares. In the case of WB and these other companies, it gives basically Vince McMahon the ability to sell uh, enough of his shares so that he may have a minority of, which he, in fact, does today. He started out with a majority of the company, uh, the McMahons, gave up, I believe, initially from the IPO in 1999, gave up about 30%, 20 to 30% of the company. Vince McMahon now holds about one-third of the shares. But because m- the vast majority of his shares are Class B shares that give him 10 times the voting power over all others, uh, he owns 80% of the control. And control of what? What does that mean? That means that Vince Hat gets 80% of the votes in anything that the board of directors or the shareholders have to vote on. So each year, as they did, uh, which we have the audio of this year at the annual shareholders meeting, there's always an election to approve of the various board of directors. And basically Vince owns 80% of those votes. So Vince cannot be taken over in a hostile takeover it's very difficult to push him out of the company as long as he owns enough shares that he has the majority of the voting power. So it could get down to, I think the, the math really fluctuates. It really depends on how many of the other family members have class B shares. But Vince could own something like as, as little as 10% of the company. Again, he owns about a third of it right now. He could sell even more of his stock and still have the majority of control. One might argue generally that that's not good for a company to uh, give disproportionate control to people who, who do not have proportionate ownership, but I digress. There's a, a short article about W ownership on wrestlenomics.com that basically just looks at who the, the biggest owners are, the McMahon family members, how much they own, and who are the biggest financial institutions that own WB, which by the way, and I think a lot of people don't quite realize this, that uh, WB and the just basically all publicly traded companies are, and are not owned. It's not like this great, you know, sort of democratic, entrepreneurial capitalistic thing that at least I I imagined when I was uh, younger or even not that long ago, that the shareholders, oh, it sounds like, it sounds like just regular people, shareholders who are watching CNBC, watching the the ticker. My grandmother used to do this. I used to go over to her house and she had a clipboard with a lined paper on it with these, these ticker ticker letters of these various stocks that she owned and she would watch CNBC and, and there was no internet at the time. That's how old I am, and they would, you know, the 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 t- stock tickers. We would wait for her stocks to to crawl across the screen so she could see what the price was that day. Um But anyway, it, it, the the idea of shareholders gives you know gave me this sort of naive image in my head of you know regular people all collectively owning this uh, company, but it's not really the case. The vast majority of WWE probably the vast majority of at least companies on the s&p 500 let's say the biggest companies in the world the majority of their shares uh, among those that are not uh owned by the, the founders or the executives are owned by financial institutions um and a lot of them like blackrock which owns a sizable portion of wb they're basically companies as far as i understand that uh make mutual funds and they uh take care of people's pension funds and retirement funds. And in fact, I think there's, there's many, oh, I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's people who could explain this better than me, but just by, by looking at some things uh, earlier this week, it looks like BlackRock kind of orchestrates a lot of different pension funds within it and retirement funds and things like that within BlackRock itself or something like that. Anyway, uh, big financial institutions own most of, you know, what's going on here. And it is not as if there's all these, you know, uh, entrepreneurial investors, stockholders who are, you know, sitting at their laptops on their E-Trade and Ameritrade accounts, uh, watching Monday Night Raw and hoping that the stock price goes up. Uh, the vast majority of W stock is owned by McMahon family members and financial institutions. So anyway, this is a short article on RussellNomics.com. I'm going to get into some things though that are not in that article, uh, which is I didn't realize at least all, all these details here that I, I knew that Vince gave a lot of his shares to Stephanie. And, and I think I knew that he gave some shares to Shane. So here's the timing of just what happened and and how much was given to whom. What makes this kind of confusing. And again, this is one of the things I don't need to get into a lot of detail about, uh, in audio, but Vince McMahon has a number of what are called irrevocable trusts, which I could not even begin to explain to you what they are. I don't know. But these are what I, these are some sort of accounts that Vince put large amounts of shares into over the years. He did this at least four or five times. He did it in 2004, in 2008, in 2010, and 2013. And the, I think he did it in 1999 as well at the beginning. But anyway, in 2004, he started the Vince, Vincent K. McMahon 2004 Irrevocable Trust. And a lot of what uh, he put something like 14 million shares into the Irrevocable Trust. And he gave uh, about 1.8 million shares to each Stephanie and Shane in June 2007. Then uh, he, in 2008 started up another irrevocable trust that he put 15 million shares into. So a similar number of shares as the earlier irrevocable trust. And let's see, in up to that point, Shane had some uh, A-class shares uh, by virtue of, I think, stock options and stock awards. Maybe Stephanie had at that point as well. Stephanie's not an executive officer yet, though. But anyway, they each in equal amounts get 1.8 million shares in 2007. June of 2007, in fact, uh, a few weeks after uh, Chris Benoit killings and suicide. By the way, sort of put a timeline on it. So it's 2007. Then remember the end of 2009, Shane leaves the company, but Shane does not sell all of his shares upon leaving, which is I think is what I previously believed. He does not sell all of his shares while uh, upon leaving, but he holds them. The proxy statements show he holds. Uh, as much as 1.9 million shares through 2009, through at least March of 2010. And then the proxy statement in March of 2011 show, doesn't show him holding anything. So presumably he sold all of his shares, uh, over 1.8 million shares, sometime between March 15th, 2010, and March 2nd, 2012, which is the next uh, record we have of Shane holding some stock. Because in December of 2011, on December 29th, in fact, 2011, there is another stock gift from Vince McMahon from the 2008 irrevocable trust. 1.8 million shares additionally are given to Stephanie for certain we have an SEC filing showing that for certain. And that's uh, exactly one half the number of shares that are gifted so some somewhere or somebody or somebody's else got the exact same number of shares on december twenty ninth two thousand eleven and lo and behold, the proxy statement published uh in March, which is published with information that is good as of March second two thousand twelve, shows Shane McMahon holding exactly that many shares no longer with the company has not been with the company since the end of two thousand nine now it's March two thousand and twelve, and he uh, has gotten this stock gift of 1.8 million shares uh, from Vince. The following year's proxy, March 2013, shows him holding 1.5 million shares, so apparently he has disposed of roughly 300,000 shares. By the way, also had disposed of the 1.8 or 9 million shares that he held uh, as late as March 2010. And then the following year, uh, after what I just mentioned, the March 2013, March 2014, Fourteen, Shane is not mentioned as a beneficial owner, and is never mentioned as a beneficial owner ever again. So he disposed of these shares, and all likelihood sold the shares and liquidated the stock to probably to do the, the various business ventures that he got involved in after leaving the company. But it was interesting to me to you know I I guess I wanted to to re-listen to Shane's reasons for leaving the company, sort of in especially in that uh, earlier. Interview comment with uh, McFoley, really alluding to some tension between himself and vince and but uh, that did not stop Vince from giving him you know millions of dollars worth of WB stock as a gift so one point eight million shares in December two thousand eleven was worth how much now this is not the price that he necessarily at all sold the shares for, but just to get an idea of the value of what he was getting there in December two thousand eleven. W stock was only worth, it's worth much more today, as, as much as we talk about, you know, problems with the stock. Uh, the December 2011, the stock is worth roughly, I'm getting $9.32 on December 30th, 2011, for an example. Uh, it seems to be in that range for quite a long time, before and after. Multiply $9.30 by 1.8 million shares. And you get—we're just going to round these numbers here—but you get over sixteen million dollars of market value. Over sixteen million dollars—that's that's more than than is in my bank account, mind you. That was his second gift. Uh, he got an earlier gift in two thousand seven with a similar number of shares. And again, Stephanie getting gifts at the same time with an equal number of shares. So, other things we learned: there is an additional Vincent K. McMahon irrevocable trust. That of the 2013 Vince McMahon Irrevocable Trust. And from the best I can tell, this is sort of the Linda McMahon Trust. This is a trust that uh, Vince uses, it appears, to give Linda a lot of stock. Now, Linda has over a half million shares. She still does today. She has had over a half million shares since the beginning of the company. Well, since the beginning of the IPO, I should say. Vince, by the way, starting off with... I think it's, is it something like 50 or 60 million shares? He's now down to 28 million at the moment. Yeah. The earliest, and there, there may be something in the proxy or the S1, but 56 million shares. I've got him holding in July 2000. But anyway, Linda has half a million shares, except for the time where she is listed on the proxy as having upwards of nine million W shares. And Linda does have class B shares as well. These are all Class B shares. She has 100 Class A shares. I, I imagine it's because of some sort of stock award uh, much earlier in the company when apparently they didn't have to uh, file uh, SEC forms related to all this maybe earlier uh, back when she was an executive or the president or the CEO of WWE. So the 2013 uh, Vince McMahon Irrevocable Trust has 8.5 million shares put into it and over a period of time, so we're going from, let's see here, the 2013 Irrevocable Trust, of course, starts in December 2013 and between that time and I think it's May or is it August? Through May 2016, those shares are converted to A-Class and sold. They are sold for at least... $66 66 million dollars probably there's an addition
3: in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks we hype ourselves up thinking maybe i can pull a Ken Griffey junior rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates it's all just a shot in the dark until now introducing slab packs from arenaclub.com the only repack that provides real value by going to arena club.com slash VOW net. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slap pack, $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net. Arena club.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voice of the Wrestling Podcast
1: Network. We'll sell, sell there we don't have a SEC record for. There's not a lot of transparency about everything because Linda is no longer working for the company. So I, apparently she's not required to file SEC forms for her transactions because she's not a an employee uh, or executive of WWE. So, but at least $66 million in, in value from WWE stock liquidated. Uh, by August 2016, uh, another big sale earlier in May 2016. And can you think of any events in the life of somebody like Linda McMahon that she may have been needing millions and millions of dollars for? Mm. Well, if you go to fec.gov and enter Linda McMahon's name and uh, enter cities like Greenwich and um Stanford, you will find... Uh, a lot of records of Linda Command making political contributions. Now she made lots of political contributions before these stock sales, for sure. Uh, between the years of 2008 and just before the trust was set up, uh, and the 2013 trust was set up, she made $3.5 million in political donations. Remember, she had two Senate runs, uh, from 2008 to 2013 and 14. She ran for, for, when did she run? Senate? Even years. 2008 and 2010, I think. Was there a 12 in there? Get Goddamn, Blumenthal out of office. She ran in 2010 and 2012. So, but anyway, in the years of 2008 to 2014, she made a grand total of $3.5 million in political contribution. That's That's a lot of money. Now, after that point, through the present, she has made and since she has received uh, or liquidated more than $66 million of be stock, she has made nearly $17 million of political contributions, mostly to uh, Republican causes, such as the campaigns of Donald Trump. And she chairs the America First Action Committee, the super PAC for Donald Trump's campaign for reelection. So that is the bulk of what I learned Uh, I I went through all the proxies and entered lots of information into spreadsheets and copied and pasted a lot of information from sec.gov related to Form 4s and Form 3s. That's what I do with my time. I go through boring, bureaucratic documents, and it's just a a fun puzzle. Um, uh, One other interesting thing I learned is that among the institutions that I've had W ownership way back early, in the days of the IPO, or way back early in the days of WB being a publicly traded company. It's a publicly traded company, don't you know? Um, General Electric held 2.3 million shares. That may have been, had something to do with the uh, XFL ownership, maybe, with Dick Ebersol. I don't know. But NBC, NBC's parent company at the time, right? General Electric Electric Company, owning 2.3 million shares in WB in 2000, the proxy says. And Viacom, owning the exact same number of shares, 2.3 million shares Viacom the broadcaster in the United States of Raw at the time so I didn't know that that's interesting Do, uh, Viacom owning W shares at least up until August 2002 they appear on proxy statements as a, a major owner Viacom the parent company of Spike at the time those broadcasting raw so and then from there Major League Baseball got an extension its broadcast rights contract with turner the parent company of tbs an extension from 2022 to 2028 reported to be worth more than 3 billion dollars from warner media or the warner media the parent company of the parent company of the parent company of the superstation tbs according to cnbc that contract has an average annual value of 470 million dollars per year average annual value 470 million dollars per year that's five years of monday night raw in terms of value that is up from an average annual value of 325 million what is that an, an x difference of we like to talk in terms of x differences you know uh, w getting a 3.x increase in their current round versus their prior round so let's see and. 70 divided by 320 equals 1.4X. So, a 40, 44, let's see, let me round up, 45% increase in TV rights value for Major League Baseball. What does this have to do with wrestling? Astute listeners of WrestleNomics know professional wrestling in the United States, anyway, is all about media, media rights value, and the looming, persistent, Question that will, for the foreseeable future, uh, weigh over the heads of major pro wrestling companies in the United States is, will I get an increase in media rights value in my my next round of negotiations? For Major League Baseball, for at least one of its broadcasters, the answer is yes. Uh, a great deal of anxiety happening these days about NFL viewership, NBA viewership. Uh, I want to read this quote in the Houston Chronicle from an article. Is probably today or this week, where they quote Patrick Crakes, who is a former Fox Sports executive, who now works as a TV consultant, uh, talking about uh, the year-over-year comparisons of NFL viewership in, in, in terms of it being on the decline so far in many cases. He says, it's all about what the NFL delivers compared to everyone else, and the gap in that regard has never been wider. We have an increased sports viewing audience that is dealing with lots of options, The NFL's reach was down in week one, but the average length of viewership was up. So casual fans were obviously moving around to other things. And for wrestling fans, that's a difficult pill to swallow for many reasons. Because unlike just in the case of the NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball or NHL or what have you, wrestling doesn't have any real winners. All the winners are predetermined. And wrestling fans who are looking at things on an analytical level, which is probably all of you who are listening, um, are trying to think about who's winning in terms of the economic competition. And, uh, when we try to think about who's winning in terms of the economic competition, we think about, well, who's drawing the metrics, who's drawing the viewership, the TV ratings, the attendance, the merchandise sales, the network subscriptions, the pay-per-view buys, and so on. Furthermore, we, uh, we are in an era where a lot of the TV content, uh, put this as objectively as possible a lot of the tv content is uh met with unsatisfied <laughs> reception uh is not well acclaimed some of it and some of it is not well received on a consistent basis and wrestling fans want some sort of economic consequence economic justice for a punishment for the bad tv shows that you put out and uh wwe's uh consequence has been the opposite of, of a punishment. It's been a reward for putting out the kind of content that they've been putting out. They got their TV rights more than tripled in the U S as a result of negotiations that happened with, within a, a, the, the very same year that WWE, in fact, uh, decreased in attendance and decreased in merchandise sales and decreased uh, in 2019 in the year that the TV contracts went into effect, decreased in W network subscriptions. But to Craig's point, the value is in basically where the rank is. Where is your program relative to other programs? And to take that question to WBRAW, uh we have a metric that considers that uh, from the Showbuzz Daily data set, and that's called the P18-49 ranking. And in the p eighteen forty nine ranking, and the Showbuzz Daily record goes back to Q3-2014, so we've got what is this? About six years of of data here. I break it down by quarter in this case, and we get to Q3 on track to average fifth for raw. Uh, and if you want, to, if you're looking for economic justice, that is the lowest for raw in a quarter, uh, barely on the Shoba's daily record, uh, just barely edging out. So that that's a 5.0 average ranking. That is an adjusted ranking. I'm, I'm adjusting for the fact that Nielsen reports raw in three separate rows for its three separate hours. So I'm taking one out of there because the average otherwise, uh, the highest possible average would be two rather than one. So the, the comparison is the same regardless. Uh, five is the average. Let's imagine there's one more Monday Night Raw left in Q3 2020. So this number could change next time we talk, but. That is the the lowest ranking since a 4.9 ranking in Q4 2018, and there are a few other quarters that are in that neighborhood. Q4 2016, and which is a 4.4, and Q4. Notice these are all Q4s. Uh, 4.6 in Q4 2015. Uh, the last year, Q3 2019, did a 2.7. 2.7 again. This year, Q3, same quarter. This year, 5.0. So falling down a couple slots there on the average for Raw. And that is a quarter that included the, the, the quite terrible <laughs> for Raw months of July and August. So those pre-Thunderdome months when ratings were getting especially bad. And what what about AEW? Uh, a much younger show, obviously just coming up on its one year anniversary. Uh, AEW has been improving in its rank in recent months. Of course, that's been to their benefit in August and September because of uh, not being opposed by NXT. But there were some rough months there in the post-COVID times, immediately post-COVID, of March, April, and May, where they were uh, averaging a rank of 18, 28, 10, and 17, and that has improved in July to a 6, August, and 8, and September a 7. Again, in August and September, they are benefited by not going head-to-head with NXT in some of those weeks. NXT on the USA Network follows a similar pattern to AEW, uh, having some hard months in the middle of the spring there. March, an average rank of 50. April, an average rank of 57. And then getting back in the 30s by May, uh, 39. June, 33. July, 30. And then August, 35. And here in September, 24. So, uh, NXT improving definitely from the summer and having a good September. Again, that's that September and August though, just like a W uh, where it didn't run head to head with its main uh, TV competition. And SmackDown has been all over the place and all different networks over the years. And now it's on Fox where it does beat all of its broadcast competition and, and whatever is on cable as well on Friday nights in the key demo. While it gets blown away in overall viewership, uh, on broadcast, you've got a lot of older people, I guess, watching whatever else is on broadcast TV on Friday nights, but uh, SmackDown, either leading or tying for the lead uh, for most weeks, I'm speaking totally anecdotally anecdotally in terms of looking at the, the showbiz daily. I can't remember a time uh, where I've looked at the showbiz daily and, and have seen some some other program uh, def, you know uh, n- beyond tied, but leading SmackDown in the key demo. So I, I think it's safe to say it's pretty rare, uh, if it has happened. So SmackDown perhaps doing better in terms of its ranking and doing better, the, the leading of the top four wrestling TV shows. And then from there, the Department of Labor secretary, uh, put out a, an op-ed on foxbusiness.com, uh, this week. I was alerted to this. Some, there are some proposed rules that, uh, the Department of Labor is making related to the independent contractor status. Um, this is largely a response to the gig economy, things like Uber and Lyft. Um, so I, not being a lawyer, um, I asked some lawyers about this. The long and short of it is, this isn't something that's going to affect poor wrestlers in any likelihood uh, in the immediate future. Um, the proposed rules say things like, uh, in this rulemaking, the department proposes to Adopt an economic reality test to determine a worker's status as an FLSA employee or an independent contractor. The test considers whether a worker is in business for themselves, an independent contractor, or is economically dependent on the putative, is that the word, way to say that word? Putative employer for work, making that person an employee. And then it will also propose to identify and explain two core factors, in quotes, uh, specifically the nature and the degree of the worker's control over the work, and the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on an initiative and or investment. These factors help determine if a worker is economically dependent on someone else's business or is in business for themselves. It will also identify three factors that may serve as additional guideposts in the analysis, including the amount of skill required for the work, the degree of permanence of the working relationship between the worker and the potential employer, and whether the work is part of an integrated unit of production. And finally, it will advise that the actual practice is more relevant than what may be contractually or theoretically possible in determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor, uh, end quote. So I, I asked some lawyers about this, including, uh, Jeff Estes, who wrote the, uh, new bargaining order articles, the title of the article with the Marquette sports law journal, uh, sports law review, I think is the, the name of the publication. Anyway, uh, what I, took away from this is that, you know, clearly this proposed rule, is something that's being done in response to all the litigation, especially in California, over the gig economy. Uh, and basically it sounds like this won't help wrestlers fight misclassification much. Uh undoing classification will will still take a, a lawsuit from a wrestler within the statute of limitations, which I think is about three years from the timing of the release or timing the end of the contract. Or an investigation, maybe from someone like Andrew Yang, if Andrew Yang becomes the uh, Secretary of Labor maybe sometime next year. Um, and in the case of wondering, of uh, considering the likelihood of former wrestlers suing, it seems like there are a lot of deterrents still, in terms of not wanting to burn the bridge with WWE, and, and only having a certain number of years from the release, which I th- again, I think is three, to file a lawsuit that would be valid. Although, you could say now, though, that some of the deterrent has been diminished, arguably with the addition of AEW to this competitive scene of, of professional wrestling, where you can make a good living as a pro wrestler at a, a high-paying job, and is not the only place to make a living. Uh, but even so, the prospect of one individual uh, fighting a $3.5 billion market capital company legally might not be realistic. And the deterrents that still do exist... Uh, if not and to the extent that they existed a few years ago, there are still the deterrent of not wanting to uh, you know, burn the bridge with WB and probably guarantee that you'll never work there ever again, although Jesse Ventura did make it back. But anyway, uh that lowers the possibility of collecting plaintiffs to file a class action lawsuit. So and then from there there was a article in Variety published today, Friday, written by Gavin Bridge who uh, interviewed me and asks me some questions for the article. The article is titled "W's mounting problems, audience declines, Saudi Arabia," and Andrew Yang. Uh, basically, what I was providing for uh, for Gavin in the uh, Variety article is an estimate of just how much money W makes from Saudi Arabia, explaining why it looks to be about fifty million dollars per year, and showing the accounts receivable line. Uh, holding in excess of $60 million when it had far less than that, uh, in years before there was a Saudi Arabia deal. Basically raising the questions about whether or not Saudi Arabia is late on its payments or delayed on its payments or wh- who knows what's going on there. Uh, Gavin discusses how, uh, maybe the, the lowering in the price of oil will limit Saudi Arabia's ability to pay for expensive things. Uh, like the, all the uh the sports and and uh other events that are a part of the vision twenty thirty plan to revolutionize Saudi arabia's perception around the world of which w is a part but basically discussing whether maybe Saudi Arabia will not have the money to continue to pay for things like this uh it is not a question that I've considered, and uh the economics around the oil industry are are not something that I understand. So this is an interesting topic to look at. But another really interesting thing in this article is that they they did some research, a survey just for this article, apparently. And uh, this is from the sources YouGov for for Variety Intelligence Platform. There's a survey that is, there's a chart in here uh, titled Reasons Why U.S. Viewers Stopped Watching Professional Wrestling. The N is 479 adults aged eighteen or older who used to watch wrestling at least one of a w dynamite w nXt w raw or w smackdown and there's one two three four five six seven eight nine responses apparently you can give more than one of these responses uh if you' are a given respondent but we've got the the top answer or should we go in 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 reverse order here twelve percent we're not sure twenty four percent said some other reason uh 7% said the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why they stopped wrestling was the show wasn't listening to fans. Only 7%. Uh, 9% said the announcing was not as good. 14% said the content was more geared toward children. 26%, about a quarter, said the matches were not as good or interesting. That's why they stopped watching. 28% said the reason they stopped watching were the characters were not as good or interesting. 29% said the storylines were not as good Or interesting and 30% the leading cause, uh, according to the subjects themselves said that it seemed more cartoonish than when I liked it. So again, the article gets into a lot of what you might in a SWAT analysis call a lot of risks and, um, threats for WWE, including the quality of the content. And then from there, we close today's episode, this week's episode with a reading from the correspondence, you know, sometimes there's the, you know, the, uh, the classic authors, you know, especially after they die, they, uh, a book is published with selected letters by Ernest Hemingway or, or something of that nature, things of that nature. And, and this is, I think, equally uh, uh, literary and fascinating. So like the ownership issues that I was talking about before, this was something that I came across WSEC filings. I was reading for the first time. Uh, I've been relying a lot on corporate.w.com for my, SEC filings and uh, you could but you can also go directly to the source SEC.gov and it does include in the directory uh, some some form types uh, some document types that are not on the corporate website, including correspondence between the Securities and Exchanges Commission and WWE. and in fact we, we might say that this is the uh, these are the selected lever- letters of one of our WrestleNomics heroes. George Berrios, because he is the, the signer, the signatory, the signer of this letter, giving him, giving the impression that he is the participant in it for WB. But anyway, I give you now an episode from SEC Theater. And the letter dated August 20th, 2010. This was, you know, it's only a few months now until Triple H Levesque will become an employee with World Wrestling Entertainment. And I don't know if the SEC was aware of that or had it on its mind, but in the proxy statement that WWE published that year, uh, WWE declined to quantify the talent pay of Stephanie McMahon's husband, Paul Levesque. One Mr. Lynn Schenck of the SEC wrote to WWE, "'We note your disclosure on page 24 "'that Mr. Levesque's compensation "'is in line with comparable figures.'" Please confirm that in future filings, you will provide the disclosure regarding his compensation required by Item 404A of Regulation SK. To which George Barrios of WWE responds The company believes the qualitative description of Mr. Levesque's role as a top talent with the company is adequately disclosed to investors, and that providing the quantification of his compensation technically required by Item 404A of Regulation SK would place the company at a competitive disadvantage. As mentioned in the proxy statement, consistent with pay practices of our other top stars, Mr. Levesque's pay consists of a mixture of pay for performances and royalties for certain company products bearing his name and likeness. Subject to a minimum guarantee, a quantification of talent pay has never been publicly disclosed. We believe that such disclosure would be unfairly used by our competition and potentially by other talent during negotiations of their compensation. By way of background, and as summarized in the proxy statement, Mr. Levesque was an established star before his marriage to Stephanie McMahon, pursuant to which he became a related party. Mr. Levesque joined the company in 1995 and married in 2003, In the six years since he became a related party, Mr. Levesque's average annual pay has been significantly below that of that which he was paid in the four years prior to his marriage. Mr. Levesque's highest paid year with the company was $2,000. mister Levesque has not been our highest paid talent in any of the past five years. We believe this amply demonstrates the statement made in the proxy statement that We believe his pay is generally consistent with that of our other top stars. We also believe that this background information establishes that Mr. Levesque's pay is not influenced by the fact that he is a related party. The company is willing to add a sentence to this effect in next year's proxy statement. Oh, we do note that the company is currently planning to add to Mr. Levesque's role at the company by giving him is uh, certain un- um, employment functions for which he would be compensated as an employee beyond his talent pay. It is not anticipated that he will be an executive officer as these amounts will be paid for non-talent employment services and unrelated to his independent contractor, talent services, they would be fully disclosed in the proxy statement in the same manner in which we disclosed Shane and Stephanie McMahon's compensation. Very truly yours, George a Berrios chief financial officer. A month and a half later, on October 8th, 2010, Mr. Lynn Schenck of the SEC responds. We note your response to our prior comment 11, and we reissue the comment. Please confirm that in future filings, you will provide the disclosure regarding missile X compensation required by item 404A of Regulation SK. If you wish to request confidential treatment of information that otherwise is required to be disclosed, please refer to the substantive and procedural requirements of Staff Legal Bulletin No. 1. However, please be advised that Section 2B2 of Staff Legal Bulletin No. 1 states that, except in unusual circumstances, disclosure required by Regulation SK or any other applicable disclosure requirement is not an appropriate subject for confidential treatment regardless of the availability of an exemption under FOIA and specifically identifies disclosure about related party transactions to which WE responded the company notes the staff's position and will revise its disclosure as appropriate in future filings but may seek confidential treatment for such information at that time very truly yours George A. Barrios Chief Financial Officer in the next W proxy statement published March 18th 2011, On page 26, WWE wrote, As one of our top stars, Mr. Levesque receives pay that varies from year to year depending on the programs and events in which he performs. The films in which he stars, there were two produced in 2010. The royalties earned on home videos, video games, toys, clothing, and other merchandise bearing his name and or likeness and salary as an employee active in management in several aspects of the company's business, reporting to the chairman and chief executive officer. His total compensation aggregated across these roles was approximately $3.84 million in 2010. But in the proxy statement for the following year, published March 2012, seven months after Paul had become an executive vice president in the company the prior August, following... The entry in the summary compensation table for Paul Levesque under the column, All Other Compensation, 2074042 footnote 3, consists principally of performance fees and royalties paid to Mr. Levesque as one of the company's top talent. And so WWE, despite its grievances that it would face unfair negotiation leverage from talent and competitors... Nonetheless, disclosed the talent pay of Executive Vice President Paul Levesque. And so it has been disclosed each year ever since. Well, anyway, mercifully, that's all I have for this week. Next week is the end of Q3 2020. Other events notwithstanding, maybe we'll take a look back at the quarter that was July, August, and September. And uh, look at all the available metrics that are out there for us to consider wrestling companies. Whether it's Google Web Search, whether it's SocialBlade.com's YouTube views, ShowbizDaily.com's television viewership, or other secret sources that anyone in the public can access. In terms of other things on the research menu, the WWE Performance Center NXT developmental history project is still very much on my mind. The data is in hand. And as time allows in the week and weeks to come, I will continue to work on it. It's a very complicated subject, as it turns out, trying to uh, Come up with good and meaningful definitions to address the question of how successful has the Performance Center era been as a developmental system? It's easy to have intuitions, intuitive answers. It is harder to give answers that are backed up by real data, real information. And that's is the story of our lives. So until next time, you can support. It goes into effect on Patreon. Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Support if you want $5 a month. Read the written work at WrestleNomics.com. See the stock ticker at WrestleNomics.com. Read the W ownership article at at www.wrestlenomics.com. There's a New Japan Business article up there as well. Read Gavin Bridges' Variety article. It's linked on my Twitter and the WrestleNomics Twitter, which you can follow at WrestleNomics, and you can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.